A Treatise on the Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards It is no sign that affections have the nature of true religion, or that they do not, that they have great effects upon the body. All affections whatsoever have in some respect or degree an effect on the body. As was observed before, such is our nature and such are the laws of union of soul and body that the mind can have no lively or vigorous exercise without some effect upon the body. So subject is the body to the mind, and so much do its fluids, especially the animal spirits, attend the motions and exercises of the mind, that there cannot be so much as an intense thought without an effect upon them. Yes. It is questionable whether an embodied soul ever so much as thanks one thought, or has any exercise at all, but that there is some corresponding motion, or alteration of motion in some degree of the fluids in some part of the body. But universal experience shows that the exercise of the affections have in a special manner a tendency to some sensible effect upon the body. And if this is so, did all affections have some effect upon the body, we may then well suppose the greater those affections are, the more vigorous their exercise, other circumstances being equal, the greater will be the effect upon the body. So it is not to be wondered at that very great and strong exercises of the affections should have great effects on the body. And therefore, seeing their very great affections, both common and spiritual, Hence it is not to be wondered at that great effects on the body should arise from both these kinds of affections, and consequently these effects are no signs that the affections they arise from are of one kind or the other. Great effects on the body certainly are no sure evidences that affections are spiritual, for we see that such effects oftentimes arise from great affections about temporal things and where religion is no way concerned in them. And if great affections about secular things that are purely natural may have these effects, I know not by what rule we should determine that high affections about religious conversation, which arise in like manner from nature, cannot have the like effect. Nor, on the other hand, do I know of any rule any have to determine the gracious and holy affections when raised as high as any natural affections and have equally strong and vigorous exercises cannot have a great effect on the body. No such rule can be drawn from reason. I know of no reason why a being affected with a view of God's glory should not cause a body to faint, as well as being affected with a view of Solomon's glory. And no such rule has as yet been produced from the scripture. None has ever yet been found in all the late controversies which have been about things of this nature. There is a great power in spiritual affections. We read of the power which works in Christians, and of the Spirit of God being in them is the spirit of power, and of the effectual working of his power in them. But man's nature is weak. Flesh and blood are represented in Scripture as exceeding weak, and particularly with respect to its unfitness for great spiritual and heavenly operations and exercises. Matthew 26 verse 41 1 Corinthians 15, verses 43 and 50. The text, we are upon, speaks of joy unspeakable and full of glory. And who that considers what man's nature is and what the nature of the affections are can reasonably doubt but that such unutterable and glorious joys 
may be too great and mighty for a week, dust and ashes, so as to be considerably overbearing to it. It is evident by the scripture that true, divine discoveries or ideas of God's glory, when given in a great degree, have a tendency by affecting the mind to overbear the body. Because the scripture teaches us often that if these ideas or views should be given to such a degree as they are given in heaven, the weak frame of the body could not subsist under it, and that no man can in that manner see God and live. The knowledge which the saints have of God's beauty and glory in this world, and those holy affections that arise from it are of the same nature and kind with what the saints are the subjects of in heaven, differing only in degree and circumstances. What God gives them here is a foretaste of heavenly happiness and an earnest of their future inheritance. And who shall limit God in his givenness earnest? Or say he shall give so much of the inheritance, such a part of the future reward is an earnest of the whole and no more. And seeing God has taught us in his word that the whole reward is such that it would at once destroy the body, is it not too bold a thing for us so to set bounds to the sovereign God, as to say that in giving the earnest of this reward in this world, he shall never give so much of it, as in the least to diminish the strength of the body, when God has nowhere thus limited himself? The psalmist, speaking of the vehement religious affections he had, speaks of an effect in his flesh or body, besides what was in his soul expressly distinguishing one from the other, once and again, Psalm 84, verse 2. My soul longs, yea, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cries out for the living God. Here is a plain distinction between the heart and the flesh as being each affected. So Psalm 63, verse 1, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Here also is an evident design distinction between the soul and the flesh. The prophet Habakkuk speaks of his body's being overborne by a sense of the majesty of God. Habakkuk 3 verse 16 When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. So the psalmist speaks expressly of his flesh trembling. Psalm 119, verse 120, My flesh trembles for fear of you. The such ideas of God's glory, as are sometimes given in this world, have a tendency to overheat the body. It's evident, because the scripture gives us an account that this has sometimes actually been the effect of those external manifestations God has made of himself to some of the saints, which are made to that end, namely, to give them an idea of God's majesty and glory. Such examples we have in the prophet Daniel and the apostle John. Daniel, given an account of an external representation of the glory of God, says in Daniel 10 verse 8, And there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned into corruption, and I retained no strength. And the apostle John, Giving an account of the manifestation made to him, says in Revelation 1, verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It is in vain to say here these were only external manifestations or symbols of the glory of Christ, which these saints beheld. 
For though it is true that they were outward representations of Christ's glory, which they beheld with their bodily eyes, yet the end and use of these external symbols or representations was to give to these prophets an idea of the thing that was represented, and that was the true divine glory and majesty of Christ, which is his spiritual glory. They were made use of only as significations of his spiritual glory, and thus undoubtedly they received them and improved them and were affected by them. According to the end for which God intended these outward signs, they received by them a great and lively apprehension of the real glory and majesty of God's nature, which they were signs of. And thus were they greatly affected, their souls swallowed up, and their bodies overborne. And I think they are very bold and daring who will say God cannot or shall not give delight clear and affecting ideas and apprehensions of the same real glory and majesty of his nature to any of his saints without the intervention of any such external shadows of it. Before I leave this head, I would further observe that it is plain that scriptures often make use of bodily effects to express the strength of holy and spiritual affections, such as trembling, groaning, being sick, crying out, panting and fainting. Now, if it be supposed that these are only figurative expressions to represent a degree of affection, yet I hope all will allow that they are fit and suitable figures to represent the high degree of those spiritual affections, which the Spirit of God makes use of them to represent, which I do not see how they would be if those spiritual affections, let them be never so high a degree, have no tendency to any such things, but that, on the contrary, they are the proper effects and sad tokens of false affections and the delusion of the devil. I cannot think God would commonly make use of things which are very alien from spiritual affections, and are shrewd marks of the hand of Satan, and smell strong of the bottomless pit, as beautiful figures, to represent a high degree of holy and heavenly affection. A Treatise on the Religious Affections, Jonathan Edwards, sign number two.